0: Well, let's begin with a question. If we could strip away everything that's extraneous at its core, who are we? What are we doing? Where are we heading as a church? In other words, what is the essence of what Christianity is all about? What is expected of us as, as believers? Let me, let me change it and, and ask it in, in this sense. Um the word Christian is probably the most common designation for people who follow Jesus Christ, who put their faith and trust in in jesus christ um and so you know when I say that word Christian, what does it really mean what What comes to mind when I say the word christian what what comes to your mind? Give me some answers I'm sorry follower of Christ, relationship, a believer, love, lover. Okay. Well, here's something that's really interesting to note. That the early followers of Jesus Christ did not call themselves Christians. In fact, the word Christian is used only three times in the New Testament what they did call themselves was the word disciple. In fact, it's found 281 times in the New Testament. Uh, it's a disciple. And so I want to suggest to you that because we've changed the word, you know, instead of calling ourselves disciples, and again, that is the primary word in the New Testament for people who have a relationship with Jesus Christ, who've said, I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. That's the primary word. Instead of calling ourselves disciples, by simply calling ourselves Christians, we have lost the clarity of what that word disciple really means, what what an actual follower of Jesus Christ is all about. I mean, consider this. Currently, there are 2.07 billion christians in the world 32 percent of the world's population identifies as christian but does that term disciple really describe all 2.07 billion people who call themselves christians um see what we're going to find is that the word christian really doesn't say much does it um the better term, maybe the clearer term, is that word disciple. Now, I'm not telling you to go to work tomorrow and tell people, I'm no longer a Christian, I'm a disciple now, you know. Uh, I'm not going there, okay? That's not what I'm saying. But what I'm saying is, let's go back and look at the fundamental New Testament uh, teaching about what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. Uh, we'll start in 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 Mark's Gospel in the third chapter, beginning at verse thirteen and fourteen. And he, and it's talking about Jesus here. And Jesus went up on the mountain and called to him those he himself wanted, and they came to him. Then he appointed twelve that they might be with him. <clears throat> now. For us to gain maybe a better understanding of this group of 12 guys that that Jesus has called himself, let's go back to the first century Jewish world. Um, One of the things you see as you read through the the New Testament, the Gospels, is there came a point when Jesus began his ministry that he settled in the town of Capernaum. Capernaum was an, an area called the Triangle. Three major cities—not major cities, more like villages—made up what was called the Triangle. There was Bethsaida, there was Chorazin, and there was Capernaum. And um, it's significant because Bethsaida was the home of Peter and Andrew. It was the home of James and John and Philip. Later, Peter and Andrew are going to move to Capernaum. Capernaum is also the place where Jesus called Matthew to leave his tax collector booth and follow him as a disciple. So this area known as the triangle of Bethsaida, Chorazin, and and Capernaum was a hotbed of rabbinical communities, rabbis and their students. Uh, in, In fact, these three communities were the leading centers of Jewish discipleship both in Galilee and in Judea. And it was in these rabbinical communities under the rabbis or, or the teachers that the Jewish law was taught to the youth of, of Judea, of Galilee. Uh, they were taught the law of Moses, the Torah, and the remainder of, of what we know as the Old Testament. <clears throat> and so when I say they learned the, old, the, the, the Torah, Of course, that was just the first five books of the Bible. And when they learned it, it was more than just, uh, oh, I'm going to know a little bit about it. They were memorizing Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Can you even grasp memorizing all of that? And yet they started out, a child would start out at the age of five, and that would be their, their, their task, would be to go to school for five years to learn those first five books of the Bible. The school was called Beth Sefer, which is just kind of like elementary school, okay? That's kind of what it was. And the learning of the Torah started for five-year-olds uh, with a very special ceremony. Uh, they would gather all the five-year-olds. In most of the cases, it was all five-year-old boys. But beginning in the first century world, there were some girls who were also included in Beth Zephyr. They were learning the Torah as well. And they would start by putting a drop of honey on the tongue of every one of those students. And for some of those kids, that was the very first time they had ever tasted Sweetness. And as they were tasting that, as it was flooding their bodies, the first chapter of Genesis would be read. And the image is this, that what they're hearing, the Word of God was going to be sweet to them all their life. Isn't that a beautiful picture? That this is a sweetness in their life. And so for the next five years, they memorized the Torah and began to understand what it meant. The interpretation of it <laughs> well, by the age of ten, they had kind of a, a weeding out, okay um, because at this point, only the best students would remain in school, maybe the top twenty percent would would remain in school, and uh, the others would go back home. They would go back to father. They would become apprentices in their family business. And so you only have the best students who remain at age age 10. And they would now study until age 17 in what was called the Beth Midrash Middle School, okay? And their task was now to learn the rest of the Old Testament. Joshua through Malachi. They would memorize large portions of it. They would come to understand what it meant and, and would be able to interpret it. And <clears throat> so they would, they would, this was the best of the of those students. And they were learning the rest of the Old Testament. Now when they got to 17 years of age, there was kind of another cut that happened. Uh, the best of the best now were selected to continue on in their uh, in their rabbinic education um, and it was these students that were called the talmudin the talmudim the word talmud means student talmudim is the plural of that and so these were students who wanted to pursue religious training with the intention that one day they wanted to become rabbis that they were going to become the teachers of of the law so to do this, if you were at that point where you were so good that you wanted to continue and you were going to become a rabbi one day, that you had to find a rabbi and really apprentice yourself to that rabbi. Uh, you would go and apply to be a student, a taldim a under that rabbi. And um, the process was really simple. You would find a rabbi that you really liked, that you really gained lots of information from. And you would go literally sit at his feet. That was applying to be a student under that rabbi. And the rabbi would ask you a series of questions. He would give you a a series of tests to see if you were worthy to be his disciple. So the rabbis, uh, they chose only the best of the best of the best to be their students or to be their disciples, uh, they were choosing some that someone that they believed could handle the task of becoming like them, just like them, not just to know what they know, not just to hear them teach, but to do what they did. And, and for several years, these Taladim would would. Uh, would follow their rabbis. They would imitate them in every way. They would learn the mannerisms of the rabbis. They would learn how to answer questions like the rabbi would answer them. They would handle certain situations just like the rabbi would handle those situations. And supposedly, in that day and time, the, the highest compliment that could be given to you was that you were covered with the dust of your rabbi. Well, a very popular saying in that day and time was, may you, be, uh, may you be covered with the dust of your rabbi. Now, that doesn't mean that, hey, you need to go get a bath, okay? That's not what it means. It means that you followed so closely behind your rabbi that whatever he stepped in splashed up on you. That That you were following him so closely that everything the rabbi did, you did. And you got covered with it. Well, in Jesus' day... There was also a special category of rabbis that were were very rare for them. They 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 possessed a characteristic that the Jewish people called smicha. That's the Hebrew word, and it simply means authority. Authority. That authority was recognized by people as a special divine blessing on a particular rabbi. Uh, in in fact. The ordination ceremony, even to this day in Judaism, the ordination ceremony of passing from one rabbi, passing the ordination on to another rabbi, is called the smicha. And, and, and yet a rabbi with smicha, this special divine authority on them, uh, was very rare in that first century world. In fact, uh, probably in that first century world, there was maybe a dozen or so that would be recognized as rabbis with smicha and and if you're any his, uh you know student of Jewish history some of the names that you would recognize Hillel or Gamaliel uh the apostle Paul studied as a disciple under Gamaliel as as you know he was a rabbi with smicha these guys were masters at the torah not only that they were mystics they and and they had a they were understood to have such a special connection to god that god could speak to them and they would interpret the law with a fresh new idea, a fresh new approach. It was brand new, and the people recognized how wonderful this teaching was because it was something that was, that was radically new. Well, now, another thing about those rabbis with Smicha, they were recognized as having that kind of authority partly also because they performed miracles. So that was another requirement that was there. Go back to to Matthew chapter, uh, or let's go back to Matthew 4, okay? Because here comes Jesus. And uh, here's Jesus who knows the Torah so well that by age 12, he's in the temple debating with the religious leaders and correcting some of their theology. Uh, Here is Jesus and he's coming and he says... You have heard it said, but I say to you. And he gives a fresh new interpretation. And and the Bible text tells us that one of the things that happened was that the hearers, people who heard him, were constantly amazed at his authority. Go over to Matthew chapter 7, the very end of it, and it says, you know, they were amazed because he taught them with such... Smicha, with such authority, they said that he taught like no other rabbi. The other rabbis were just repeating what they had heard from others, but Jesus had a fresh, new interpretation, and they were amazed at his authority. And then you look at throughout uh, his ministry, what were the religious leaders constantly doing? They were coming to Jesus and they saying, "Where did you get your authority? Prove it by doing a miracle." And so they recognize that Jesus had something that was very unique, very gifted in their day and time. So now, that's the context of the calling of these 12 men. Uh, And in fact, as you look at the gospel record, what you're going to find is that there are three, really three stages to Jesus's calling of his disciples. Um, The very first stage um, they were just simply believers. They they kind of thought, this guy sounds like he's the Messiah. I'm beginning to believe and to think that he really is the Messiah. So they were, they were checking him out. They were coming and they were hearing his teaching. Maybe they accompanied him every once in a while on some kind of excursion like the wedding at Cana. You know, they were there and they saw him perform miracles and so forth. And so this is a four or five month period. When Jesus is introducing that group of disciples to himself and to his ministry. We, we find that in John chapter 1. Um, and it's called the come and see stage. Look at uh, John 1 beginning at verse 35. It says, the following day, John was again standing with two of his disciples. There, Look at there. John the Baptist had disciples as well. Okay? following day, John was again standing with two of his disciples. And Jesus walked by... John looked at him and declared, look, there is the Lamb of God. When John's two disciples heard this, they followed Jesus. Jesus looked around and he saw them following. What do you want? He asked them. <clears throat> well, they replied, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? In other words, we're not just going to hang on the street corner with you and, 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 and hear you talk. We want to sit down. We want to spend time with you. We want to know about you. What is it you believe? What you, where are you headed? So forth. And so Jesus says in verse 39, come and see. It was about four o'clock in the afternoon when they went with him to the place where he was staying and they remained with him the rest of the day. This is kind of the come and see phase of the discipling of these 12 men. Come and see. It was, it was kind of, let's gather some information. Let's do some investigative, uh, you know, kind of the investigative phase of what's going on. These disciples were only kind of making a light commitment at this point in time to Jesus Christ. They just wanted to check him out, okay? To see what, who he was, what he was really like. Some of you are at that point. Right now in your life. You're, you're here this morning. You're just gonna check it out. You know, you're at a point where you have a light commitment to Jesus Christ and when it's convenient you're here and when it's not convenient you're not here, you're just checking it out. You're kind of learning more about what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. What is this church thing all about? You're, you're, you've come and see and you're checking it out. You've got friends and family members. <laughs> you've got coworkers that are kind of in that stage of come and see. I'm, I'm just here and I'm just going to kind of check out what's going on, okay? Well, during this phase of, uh, of the ministry of Jesus and, and his disciples, they were just learning about the person Jesus Christ, his, his character, his personality, uh, the nature of his mission that, you know, uh, his teachings and all that. And Jesus is wanting these disciples to come to know God himself. So he begins right here. He says, just come and see. We all begin there. But we shouldn't stay there. We shouldn't stay there. We need to move beyond that. And so you come to that second stage with his disciples. And it's the come and follow stage. Come and follow. Come and follow. Again in Matthew chapter 4 beginning at verse 18. One day as Jesus was walking along the shore of the Sea of Galilee. He saw two brothers. Simon also called Peter and Andrew throwing a net into the water, for they fished for a living. Jesus called out to them, come and follow me, and I will show you how to fish for people. And they left their nets at once and followed him. Now, remember at the baptism of Jesus, John the Baptist baptized Jesus, and the event that happened that God spoke from heaven and said, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. That in a sense was kind of an ordination of Jesus the Messiah. The imparting him with that smicha, that authority. So here now is Jesus. And he's this new rabbi on the block. And he's just oozing with smicha, okay? Um, And he's choosing Simon and Peter, uh, Simon Peter and Andrew, who are fishermen. Now stop right there. Does the fact that they're fishermen say anything to you? They didn't make the cut. They were not the best of the best of the best. They had already flunked out of rabbinical school. And had gone home and become apprentices. Working in the family trade of, of fishing. They were part of the B team. Now let that sink into your brain for a moment. Okay. That God is putting. Jesus Christ is putting together his team. That's going to transform the world. And they're all B team players. <clears throat> he, he went past the A team, okay? And he went to the B team. These rabbinical school dropouts. They didn't make the cut. They weren't the best of the best of the best. So think about it. The point is... Jesus said, follow me. And what would you have done if you had flunked out of rabbinical school and you didn't have a chance to go on, you know, and somebody says, hey, I'll give you a second chance. And they wanted to follow him. They were eager to follow him. Of course, they wanted to follow this rabbi, one who who had the smicha, who had this authority on him. I mean, here were guys who were, oh, I don't know, kind of didn't have much potential They uh, or personal power. And Jesus is choosing them to follow him, become like him, to know God like he knows God and to do what he does and to be filled with his power. A couple of thoughts there. Number one, God didn't choose the best, did he? He chose the willing. So anytime that, that, you know, you sense God is saying, hey, I want you to do this. Don't ever say to God, God, You can find somebody better to do this than me. Because God doesn't choose the best. He chooses the willing. Those who are willing for God to use them in any way possible. But a second thought here is notice that it's Jesus who chose them. They didn't choose him. That is so opposite of the way in which first century rabbinical communities operated. You went and you applied to a to a, a rabbi saying, hey, I'd love to sit under your feet and learn from you. Would you take me on as your pupil? Jesus did it just the opposite. He went to them. He took the initiative, went to them and say, I choose you. I want you to follow me. In fact, in John 15, 16... Jesus said to his disciples, "You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you so that you would go and bear much fruit." <clears throat> now, so he said, "Come and follow me. Come and be my disciple." What what does that really mean? What were they going to do? I mean, did they just sit around all day and throw darts, you know, and and wait for some miracle to happen? What were they doing during that period of time as his disciples? Well, as you look at the, the the rabbinical community, and come to understand what was going on, there were five things that a rabbi and, and his pupils would would be engaged in. Five things that were, they made up the discipling process. Number one. They were to be submitted or attached to a teacher. That is, they submitted to his authority. They submitted to his commands. They, they were obedient to him. That's what it means to be a disciple, to submit to a teacher. A second part of that is, then they learned the words of that teacher. Um, they would learn the teacher's story. They would learn his life habits. They would watch how he keeps the Sabbath. They would look at his ways, the way in which he interpreted the Torah and the way in which he taught. And all of this would be committed to memory. They were memorizing verbatim the words of the teacher so they could repeat back word for word, uh, punctuation for punctuation, all the teachings of The rabbi gives us great confidence when you get to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that the words that they say, this is what Jesus said, that's what Jesus said. That was their learning method in that day and time. It was an oral tradition. They memorized what was said And so that's one of the things you were doing. You were learning the words of the teacher. And then the third thing, a disciple learned the way of ministry of the teacher. They they learned how that teacher kept... God's commands, including, you know, how he practiced the Sabbath, how he prayed, how he fasted, how he said blessings in some kind of a ceremonial situation. He would learn his rabbi's teaching methods. He would see the way that that rabbi interacted with people in ministry and in helping and all those kinds of situations. So he learned the ways of ministry of that teacher. And a fourth thing is then a disciple imitated the life and the character of the teacher. Began to imitate them in in their their character. In fact, Jesus said in Luke 6.40 that when a disciple is fully taught, he will be like his teacher. That again was the highest calling of a disciple, to imitate his teacher. And then fifth, eventually a disciple would find and would teach others the ways and the words of the rabbi. In other words, he began to have his own disciples. And he passed on to them what he had heard from that rabbi. See, a disciple was expected to reproduce what he had learned by finding and training his own apprentices, his own, his own group. And so, <clears throat> here are Andrew and Peter and James and John and, and Philip and Matthew and the, and the rest of them, they followed as his disciples They were being with Jesus 24-7, and and they were learning the words of Jesus. They were learning the ways that Jesus ministered to people, and they were learning to imitate him, to be like him in character and behavior and attitude and and speech. And finally, they were preparing themselves to reproduce what Jesus had done in their life in the lives of others. That's what it means to follow Jesus Christ. That's what it means to be a disciple. Jesus said, Come and see and come and follow. But then Jesus takes the call a little bit deeper. And we enter what's called the come and die. Come and die phase. Look at Mark chapter 8 beginning verse 34. (coughs) And he summoned the crowd with his disciples and he said to them. If anyone wishes to come after me. He must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel will find it, will save it, excuse me. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? Folks, there is a price to be paid to be a sold out follower of Jesus Christ. Now, that sounds theoretical, doesn't it? You know, for me to come up, stand up here and say, you know, we need to be willing to give up everything to follow Jesus Christ. But for these 12 guys, that was reality. Go back to, to Matthew chapter 4. Did you notice the words, and they left their nets at once and followed him? Uh, when Rob Salyer and I were in Greece a couple of years ago, on our fact finding mission, we had, uh, we heard from a, a, several new believers in Jesus Christ who had come out of a Muslim background. These were, uh, Arab, uh, uh, Arab immigrants who had fled their country. And time and time again, we heard them talk about that when they accepted Jesus Christ, their families cut them off, declared them dead. They couldn't go back to their families. Some of them couldn't go back to their homeland ever again. Those are people in our day and time who literally have given up everything to follow Jesus Christ. Most of us will never have that kind of experience. We're, we're not going to have that kind of experience. But Jesus said we need to be willing to do Whatever He calls us to do to follow Him. You know, most of you are not going to be asked by God to leave your job and go do something different. But God might be calling someone right here this morning to go onto the mission field. And, and, And let me just remind you that missionaries aren't just preachers. There's missionaries who are over there who are helping people learn how to farm. There are missionaries over there who are engaged in administration and bookkeeping, accounting. There are missionaries over there who are over there in administration and in education and in the medical field. It it simply says that, that God can take whatever skill you have and he can use it to reach people in a foreign land for him. Do you realize they need drillers to go as missionaries to learn how to teach the people how to drill water wells? All of those things, all the skills that we have in this place could be used in a different place. And God might be calling you to do that. Um, God might be calling some right here in this building to move out of Calvary Baptist Church and become part of a church plant that we're going to start over in the south side of Elko in in the next few months. Maybe that's where God will will, will call you. Um, That'll happen for some of you. You're going to have moments in your life where you're going to have to decide what holds the greater sway in your life. Um, I'm going to follow what God wants or I'm going to follow what I want. You know, maybe this year instead of having a vacation in some fancy resort or taking a, a great cruise, you take the money and the time and you go with me to Alaska to work with children, or to go to Athens and work with new believers in Arab speaking churches. Maybe that's what God would have you to do. For our young people. You know, you may be the only one of your whole group who's going to make a decision to stand up for Jesus Christ. And you're going to get labeled as some kind of religious nut or or, or whatever, you know. Uh, And you're going to have to decide, am I going to just sit back and let them intimidate me? Or... Am I going to let Jesus have a greater presence in my life than the peer pressure around me? Um, some of you in the work world, you're going to be tempted to cut corners. Or are you going to follow what God wants you to do and be an example for Him in all the things that He, he asks you to do? And, and, and for some of us, it's simply in the area of our income. You now, the Bible is so plain and clear that that first 10% belongs to Him, and that we'd be giving that to Him. And, and to be honest with you, that's an area where I think most Christians demonstrate they really don't know what it means to be a disciple, because we're just not willing to obey God in that area with, with giving the tithe to Him. You see, to follow Jesus Christ means that you subject every area of your life to his lordship. Uh, You forsake all that he has forbidden and you pursue all that he has prescribed as what he would wants for your life. So what does it mean to be a disciple? Evaluate your life. I mean, are you submitting to Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord in your life? Are you learning the words of your master? Is his word becoming so powerful in your life that you're applying it every day in your life? How many of you were able to complete my challenge last, this last fall to read the New Testament before the end of the year? How many of you made a good try at it? There you go. All right. All right. Let me give you another challenge. Why not in the next 365 days, why not read through the whole Bible? Start again in the New Testament. Get you a good running start. Don't, don't start. Please don't start in Genesis. And if you've never read the Bible, that's the wrong place to start. Because you will be dead in the water by the middle of Exodus, okay? <laughs> start in the New Testament. Read through it. Then go to the book of Psalms. Read through that. Then, by, once you've acquired the habit Then you can begin over in Genesis and Exodus and and Leviticus and Hezekiah and, you know, all those. Okay, so there's a challenge. Are you involved in ministering to other people like Jesus was ministering? Are are you carrying out his ministry through your life? Um, And are you becoming more and more like your teacher in your character? Reflecting his attitudes and his values in your life. And finally, what about that last thing that a disciple did? Are you finding other people who need to become disciples of Jesus Christ? That really leads us to that fourth stage of being a disciple. And that is you need to come and reproduce. That's what Jesus called them to do. Come and reproduce. Or in in his words, go and tell. Go and tell others. Look at Matthew 28. Therefore, go and make disciples of all the nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit teach these new disciples to obey all the commands <coughs> i have given you and be sure of this i am with you always even to the end of the age <coughs> in <coughs> excuse me in this passage <coughs> the main verb in this in this verse is the word make disciples Jesus says, go and make disciples. The way you make disciples is teach them, baptize them, train them, and so forth. But go and make disciples. See, a disciple is one who is spiritually producing. If you're going to be a disciple, you're going to be uh, reproducing yourself in the lives of other people. You know, go back to Matthew chapter 4 and verse 19. And it says, I will make you a fisher of men. That's an essential part of being a disciple of Jesus Christ. It's not something for just a few of us to do. No, it's something, according to Jesus, that all of us are to be doing. In fact, Jesus says, if you're not doing this part of sharing your faith with other people, then you're not my disciple. And you think, well, wait a minute, preacher, you're just kind of being a little melodramatic there, you know, that if you're not witnessing, you're not a disciple of Jesus Christ. Well, okay, let me call your bluff, okay? Look at John chapter 15, verse 8. Jesus said, my father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciple. How do you prove that you're his disciple? Because you're bearing fruit spiritually that people are coming to know of your hope in Jesus Christ and coming to know hope in their own life through faith in Jesus Christ. If you're really his disciple, that's going to be a part of your life. You're going to be reproducing spiritually. And if you're not reproducing spiritually, if you're not sharing your faith, if you're not helping other people to grow in Jesus Christ, then you have good reason to question, am I really a disciple of Jesus Christ or not? Maybe most importantly, what I want you to walk away with today is I want you to walk away with this challenge. To think of one person. One person who needs Jesus Christ that you know. as A family member, a co-worker, a friend, a neighbor. Somebody that you know needs the hope of Jesus Christ in their life. And I want to challenge you to spend the next year Praying for that one person and sharing your hope as much as you can to lead them to Jesus Christ and help them to grow in Jesus Christ. That's what we're talking about. Who's your one? Who's your one? Can you imagine the impact of 200, 250 people who are Christians who call themselves a part of Calvary Baptist Church? If 200 or 250 people reached one person for Jesus Christ. Can you imagine how it would impact the community, this community? What, what if every one of our, our disciple groups said, we're going to go after one person as a group. We're going to pray for them and we're going to reach them for Jesus Christ. Can you imagine the impact? If 250 people, if all of our disciple groups went after one person to say, we're going to reach this one person for Jesus Christ. Can you imagine the impact? On Spring Creek in Elko. That's what Who's Your One is all about. Who is the one person that you know. That you could pray for. And that you could begin to just very casually and informally share Jesus Christ. And what he means to you. We're going to be talking a lot more about this over the next four, four weeks. But start now thinking about who's, the, who's my one. Who's the one that I'm going to pray for? Who's the one that I'm going to begin just sharing Christ on a very informal, very casual basis? We're not standing up and beating them over the head with the family Bible and saying, repent, be saved. Just sharing what God has done in your life. Here's my hope. Here's what God has done for me. Let me close with just a couple of questions. First of all, are you a disciple of Jesus Christ? Are you in that come and see stage or are you, you know, just kind of casually committed to him? Or are you at that point where you're going to step forward and say, I'm giving it my all, my everything. We've got uh, right at the, when I finish praying today, we've got a counselor that will be across the hall in the conference room. If there's something that you want to pray with them about, talk with them about, let them counsel you, they'll be available. One of our elders will be glad to do that. Second question is, who's your one? Who's the one person that you're going to pray for and you're going to seek to reach during 2020? Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would challenge us to the core of our being with the need to share Jesus Christ with other people. Father, we recognize that without Christ, a person is eternally lost. And we say that quite flippantly to say eternally lost, but The meaning behind all of those words is so devastatingly powerful. That for all of eternity they are cut off from a relationship with you. They are condemned already. We know that your will is that none perish. But we also know that as a part of your plan you have designated for us as your children to be bearers of the good news to people everywhere. So I pray that today you would begin to burn into our hearts a deep, deep desire to find one person that we're going to pray with and we're going to share with that they might know you as Lord and Savior. In your name we pray, amen. Let me just share with you just real quickly some things that uh, we're going to be doing, okay? One is you have in your bulletin. And if you didn't get a bulletin as you leave, grab one of these. You're going to need one of these, okay? Um, This first part here, we want you to put the name of your one on that card. Now, please, everybody listening, this is very, 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 very important. First name only. Because we want to put this on our wall of one out here. I'd love to have that wall covered with 150, 200 names. But there might be somebody <laughs> in here who's that's their name. And you don't want to put Sam Crouch on there. Just put Sam, okay? And if if they have a really weird first name that is readily recognizable, I mean, if their first name is Abercrombie, just put the letter A, okay? God knows who that stands for, Okay. And so we want you to, and we'll give you opportunity again next week and the week after that, to take that and put the one name on it and we'll put it in the offering plate. And then we're going to stick them all on the wall out here. We're calling our wall of one of names that we're praying for that Jesus Christ will, uh, will save them this coming year. In addition to that, this is a bookmark that has a, some scripture readings for 30 days of prayer. But we have a book that our ushers are going to give to you right now it's a prayer guide for 30 days so that you can be led by God's word in prayer for your one person. Guys, go ahead and start passing those out. In addition, you've got in your bulletin uh, just a, a flyer that kind of helps you to understand what the Who's Your One campaign is all about. So take your book. Begin. You can begin today. You can begin tomorrow. You can begin next week. But spend 30 days praying for your one. So give us your, your name, first name only. Use the bookmark or use the book, either one, to pray for the next 30 days uh, through these scripture passages. And let's just see what God might do. Hey, I'm going to give you an open invitation. If you have a friend that comes to, the, to faith in Jesus Christ through your witness, I'm going to invite you to be in the baptistry when we baptize them. Wouldn't that be neat to stand with your best friend or your family member and watch them being baptized? We're going to see what God might do through this campaign, okay? So get you a book and uh, begin praying. God, who's the one that you're laying on my heart? I would start with one. Don't get ambitious. Say, I'm going to convert my whole family, all 28 of them, you know? Start with one person, okay? That's important to do. And see what God might do. And then, if after a month, two months, or three months, that person comes to the Lord, say, God, who's my next one? Okay? Well, let's do this one at a time. How do you, how do you eat an elephant? One bite at a time. How do you reach the world for Christ? One person at a time. Okay. All right.